So with that, um, let's pray, and we'll look at our passage for today. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in this place to, uh, to focus on you. Lord, we ask that you would remove any distractions that we have, um, things that we're concerned about, worries, uh, fears, stresses, maybe even just thinking about the tri-tip that's out there barbecuing right now, Lord, that you would help us to focus on your word. Um, Lord, I do pray that as we look at this passage that contains a, a very powerful verse from the Apostle Paul, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, what that means, that you would help us to actually have that be the, the prayer and desire of our hearts. Because um, if we're honest, we struggle in this world. We, we, we have desires that are not of you, and we are tempted by the things of the world, by our flesh. And it's, it's really easy to, um, to not want things of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to get a better picture of who you are, a better understanding of who you are and what you've done for us, and and um, that we would kind of pull back our vision of uh, and see a, a glimpse of eternity so that we would um, be able to realign our priorities and our desires, that ultimately we um, could say and pray and desire, as Paul does here, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We ask that your spirit would help us uh, to grow in our relationship with you. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, This will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this word. We turn to you for help now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, So so today is actually the, uh, it's it's always a a meaningful day for me and Anna. um, That that today marks the the 11-year anniversary of our being called to come to this church to restart it. Um, so it's always like a time of processing, reevaluating, sort of examining what God is doing in our life. As I, as I look at all of you, I realize that when we came, there were about 10 people, and Alberto and Irma are the only ones really that are still with us today um, from that, um, that time. And so it's a time for me to kind of 
reflect. Uh, there are a lot of people who were here that, that, that placed me in this position, and they have gone to be with the Lord. And so they're, um, I don't want to say they're shadows, they're, they're, I, I, they're, their presence is still very much felt in my heart. And uh, while it's 11 years here, I realized that God's beginning to turn, and my heart started even before that. Um, <clears throat> there was a story in March of 2004. Uh, an incident happened in Iraq. Um, in March 2004, I was an active-duty Navy SEAL. I was a SEAL instructor. <clears throat> I was wrestling with the idea. I, I knew that I was getting out. I'd kind of committed to getting out of the military. I was going to get out. I had one year to go. Anna and I began to make plans uh, to sort of get our lives in order. We had owned a condo, and we would sell it in, in June, and it, just to kind of be free and available to do whatever God wanted us to do. Um, we interviewed with SIM, which is a missions agency, um, just because really I felt like God was calling my bluff, that I was willing to do whatever he wanted me to do. And, and getting out of the military was a terrifying thing for me. The thought to go into the ministry was, was horrifying. For Anna, it wasn't really that big of a deal. She was raised as a missionary kid, and, and so the, we had different struggles. Um, but during this window, we were, our house was on the market, and I'd heard reports of these five missionaries that were killed in, in Iraq. Uh, there was a, a drive-by shooting. At the time, it didn't mean anything to me, but it, the irony is one of the ladies was from a Valley Baptist church, and this church was Valley Baptist church for a long time, but not this Valley Baptist church. There's a huge Valley Baptist church in Bakersfield. And so this lady was one of the five that was killed, and this week, sort of reflecting on that story and the challenge that I had during that time, hearing that story, wrestling with, you know, it seems funny to me now, but at the time, it seemed safer to be a SEAL than it was to be a pastor <laughs> going anywhere, um, because that's what I knew, and that's what we did. And, and, um, but I didn't know that this lady had written a letter. And this week, as I was sort of perusing stuff, I stumbled upon this letter that this lady uh, had written to her pastors a year earlier in 2003 uh, in the event that she was killed or died or whatever. <clears throat> and I'd like to read this letter to you. She writes, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I am still working with my people group. <clears throat> I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up. Find young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. 
Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. The missionary heart, or we could say the Christian heart, really, is to care more than some think is wise, to risk more than some think is safe, to dream more than some people think is practical, expect more than some people think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too and my church family in his care, Karen. Emotional, that letter is far more emotional for me to read during both services than I anticipated. And there's something about when you're faced or you meet these individuals that have this, this drive of their life that we see in verse 21, that the, the drive of to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, I want that? Um, to be an individual that is, that is so anchored to Christ that I'm not moved by the circumstances of life, but that regardless of what's going on, that there's a, there's a joy in him that, that goes beyond words, that's, that's unmovable. This lady clearly had it. The Apostle Paul has it. I think this is the whole purpose of the letter of Philippians. And I think that this is what he's trying to convey to the church in Philippi and and God through the Spirit who's written this letter to us some 2,000 years removed. So let's look at verse 18. I'm not sure where you guys ended last week. I know it was, you know, I think the bulletin said 18a, which that can be confusing. Verse 18 is a difficult verse in translation. Some translations um, <clears throat> handle verse 18 all as in one verse. So, so you, you, so you read it all the way through, and you get two rejoices in there. Um, the chapter and verses are not inspired of God. They are conveniences that have been placed by man. Great conveniences. I'm not knocking them. But, but there are times... When translating uh, from a language where there's no capital letters, um, no punctuation, it's kind of hard to figure out how to fit things together. And so some of the translations, if you have the New American Standard like I do, I forget which ones handle this, but you'll see that there's sort of a split. Halfway through verse 18, there's a punctuation. They put a period there, and then it picks up with a new sentence sort of midway through. And so I'm just going to take the whole verse and kind of ease into this. So what we read is what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So he's asking a question. He's kind of in the context. Uh, He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, that Christ is proclaimed. And so the, 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 the situation is at the time of his writing, we know that he's been under arrest back, going back to Caesarea Philippi, which I don't have the map up there. I took it down. Um, so on the basically the western shoreline of Israel, uh, he was in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews got Paul into custody, or they, to say they got him in custody, they got hold of him, so they had him. Then the authorities got involved, 
and they're trying to figure out what's going on, why they're holding him there temporarily. His nephew comes and says, hey, there's a, there's a mob that's, that's they're going to execute you tonight. And Paul's like, hey, that's really great information, but can you, can you get that news? Can you get that to somebody that can help me? And so, so the nephew goes to the authorities, and, and they, he explains to them what's going on. And so the authorities say, okay, it's the middle of the night. They got this huge uh, contingent of people, and they basically escorted Paul from Jerusalem down to um, Caesarea, which was Herod's huge palace on the water. It's a beautiful place on the Mediterranean. And so they get Paul there, and Paul was there under arrest for two years. As they're sifting through the accusations, they find no guilt in Paul. Just before the point of where they're to release him, Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the, the right to request a hearing by Caesar, and so he appealed to Caesar. And at that point, the authorities' hands were tied. And they said, hey, I was about to release him. I could have released him, but he just appealed to Caesar. Now I've got to send him to Rome. And so they send him to Rome after two years of imprisonment there. He gets to Rome. <clears throat> we know that while in Rome, he was there for two years before he was released. Somewhere in that two-year window, he wrote the prison epistles, uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. <clears throat> he wrote those prison, prison epistles while he's there. Up to this point in Philippians, with this relationship with the church in Philippi, he says, you know what? Like, I'm here, but God is good. And all kinds of things that are happening now in my imprisonment that couldn't have happened. In fact, I have the whole Praetorium Guard at my disposal. These were like super elite soldiers. Now one of them's handcuffed to Paul, and he's like, they've got to listen to me. So now I'm sharing the gospel. It's great. This is wonderful. So regardless of all of these things, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Present active indicative. It's, it's in the present tense. Then, what creates all the confusion or the, in the translation issue is it moves from the present tense to the future tense. And that's why the New American Standard, along with some other translations, have sort of split this verse. They would probably add a, like an 18 and a half verse if they could. And so when we see yes and I will rejoice, that's a, that's a new thought kind of moving forward. So up to this point, Paul has spoken past tense and present tense, but now he says, I'm going to start looking forward. He says, yes, I will rejoice. Um, I think it was Skip Heitzig that, uh, a bunch of people made the contrast, but Skip Heitzig describes the difference between happiness and joy. Um, he says that happiness is a feeling <clears throat> that is triggered based on external circumstances. So depending on what happens to you, that kind of triggers your emotion. And we, we all have feelings. We we have life circumstances. Something happens to us, we get happy. Something happens that's we're not so happy, we get sad, or there's like the ho-hum of life and we don't really feel anything. And joy isn't so much a feeling based on circumstances. Um, it, it's something that's anchored into something deeper, less movable. In this case, we're speaking of that it's anchored in Christ. And so as Paul is... Anchored in Christ, he has joy. This is the word to rejoice. That regardless of what happens, his, his, the who he is as a person is anchored into the person of Christ. And the person of Christ is great. God is bigger than anything he's going through. So regardless of what he's going through, he's not moved by the ups and downs. He, he can be going through a terrible time, yet he could be joyful. 
And so in this situation, Paul is under arrest. We know that he would be released from house arrest. But when Paul wrote these words, he had no clue. He didn't know if he was going to be released. He didn't know if he was going to be executed. He, he didn't know. The circumstances were really dire. And yet he says, I will rejoice. He makes a choice that regardless of the circumstances, he's going to keep his eyes on God. And that's where his emotions are going to lie. And I think that there's a huge application in this for us because we cannot determine our circumstances. You, you can't. You don't know what today's going to bring. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know what the next month is going to bring. Uh, David Jeremiah, is, he says it all the time. He says that uh, uh, as a human, you're either entering into a storm of life, you're in the midst of a storm of life, or you're coming out of a storm of life. Then you rinse and you repeat. You just kind of like, being human means that there's trials. It means that there's suffering. All of us are going to die. I, hate to, I hope that wasn't like, the, ruin it with the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. Like, we're all going to die. And you're probably going to get a flat tire. Your transmission is probably going to grow up. There's going to be like your house is going to need a repainting. There's, there's stuff that just goes wrong that are circumstances. You can't control them. But you can control how you navigate them. How do you handle these things? You choose to be grumpy. You choose to complain about it. You choose to have bitterness take over your life and get into the root of your heart. Or you want to be like Paul and say, no, I will rejoice. How do we do this? I'm not naive. I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is easy or natural, even like for me at all. I always joke that my spiritual gift is worrying. <clears throat> it's not a laughing matter. It's the truth. <laughs> but I have my fellow people that have been gifted in that same way. So Paul continues. He says, so he will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So this phrase is an interesting phrase. All commentators agree that he's quoting Job chapter 13, verse 16, which is almost identical. But if you're quoting Job, that means you're in a bad place because like, basically all of Job, like you have the first couple of verses that are really good and the last couple of verses that are really good. And then like, I forget how many chapters, but it's like... Was it 30 chapters, 40? It's some long chunk of Job's misery. And in the midst of it, Job alludes to something along these lines that everybody agrees that Paul is either quoting directly or he's alluding to this, uh, this phrase that Job said. Now, this word deliverance has a broad meaning. It, it can mean anything from salvation to being freed from jail. Um, and that's where the commentators begin to sort of like, they don't bicker with one another, but they, they speculate. Well, I think Paul's talking about salvation. And their guy says, it can't be about salvation because he's going to talk about them praying for them leads to this deliverance. And their prayers don't get Paul saved. Paul was already saved. Their guy says, well, probably he's going to die. And he knows it'll be vindicated before God. So that deliverance means when he dies, he'll stand before God and he'll be delivered from this. That's a good point. But, the third guy says, well, maybe, maybe it's just that he's going to get out of jail. Mm, that's a really good point. <laughs> the deliverance could be used that way too. So it could be used in all of these ways. Nobody really knows how Paul is using this. I think all of them could be true because in the context, we see that Paul says, regardless of what happens to me, I'm going to rejoice and God's in control. And so it doesn't really matter what happens because I'll be with him. Either, either way. 
So he continues that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So, so we don't lose a train of thought. He will rejoice. He knows that deliverance will come. Deliverance will come through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I love how the New Living Translation handles that last phrase. It's, it's, it's a little bit more readable. So it says that through your prayers, uh, the Spirit of Jesus helps me. Um, <clears throat> it's a crazy thought to think that our prayers have any action on what happens in life. Like, don't ask me how it works. Don't ask me how the sovereignty of God, I, we know God is sovereign, we know God is in control, but, and he tells us to pray, and somehow when we pray, he takes the prayers and he answers them, not always the way that we like, but the way that's best. But Paul says, I'm here in jail. And I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what's happening. I don't know who I'm going to face next. I don't know who I'm going to have to answer to. But I know that you all are praying for me. And as you pray for me, I know that the Spirit of God fills me. And the Spirit of God helps me so that I can respond in a way that's glorifying to God. I'm kind of cheating and I skipped ahead. But he says, I know that the Spirit of God is moving. Your prayers, my hope and expectation, God's Spirit is within me and giving me the strength that I need to face whatever challenge is coming my way in that moment. I think we can learn so much from Paul in his prayers. If you study the New Testament and you see the Apostle Paul and how he prays, you see a man that sees the big picture. He has a huge God. And he recognizes that whatever he's going through, God is bigger, but he's more concerned, not about what happens to him, but he's more concerned about how is God reflected in his life in the midst of these circumstances? So he doesn't care if he dies. He doesn't care if he lives. Whatever happens, his prayer is that Christ would give him the strength and enable him to honor God in the midst of whatever he faces. He says, verse 20, my deliverance, I'm kind of context, my deliverance in accordance to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so you see that his, his earnest expectation is that he would be delivered. I think that he was thinking that he'd be delivered from the, the jail situation. But, but he doesn't know. Because he says whether by life or death. And so if he dies, I think that he's talking about that when he dies, that there'll be this sense of vindication that before God... He, he will stand justified in his actions. He's facing all these accusations that weren't true about his relationship with Christ, the things that he's teaching. The Jews want him executed. And so he's like, you guys are praying for me. Jesus is helping me. My expectation is that I would be delivered. That's what I hope. But I don't want to be put to shame in my action. This word shame and that word boldness are kind of tied together. That the word boldness has the idea that you are standing before somebody that is greater than you, whether it's a, the president, whether it's a, a, a leader, somebody who has authority over your life. And when, when a, a, thor, a, a person of authority stands over you, uh, maybe like a police officer at your car window as you are doing 56 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, and you recognize that that person has the authority and you're like fumbling over your words because you're nervous. 
that's sort of the idea, that, that he would have boldness before these authorities, before the Praetorian Guard, before Caesar, before all of these great leaders, that in that moment, he would be able to reflect Christ in a way that's honorable. On this idea of, uh, that I will not be put to shame in anything, John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which is an excellent book, I'm going to quote from it twice today, he writes this, Shame is the horrible feeling of guilt or failure when you don't measure up before people whose approval you very much want. And so Paul, I think, is fearful that when he stands before these great men who have all the authority and power, not just in Paul's life, but in all of Christianity in the known world at the time, that he wouldn't shrink back and not speak of Christ, that he would do something that would harm the greater picture of what Christ is doing. Because I don't want to be put to shame. I, I want boldness. John Piper on this continues. He says, the opposite of being shamed is being honored. Yes, usually. But Paul was a very unusual person. And Christians ought to be very unusual people. For Paul, the opposite of being shamed was not his being honored, but Christ being honored through him. So Paul didn't care about Paul. Paul cared about God's reflection in Paul's life. So when he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body by life or by death. Now this word exalted, what does it mean to exalt Christ in your life or in your death? This word, I think some translate it um, magnification or like to, to be magnified. Um, there's two different ways you can magnify something. The first is a microscope. What does a microscope do? You have a microscope, it's got a bunch of lenses and you can look into it. And you can see little squirmy things or whatever. And you're like, oh, that's the cheese I'm about to eat. <laughs> like, what is that? You know, like, like, you look down at the very microscopic level, things that are super, super, super tiny, and then they look huge. So that's, that's, that's a type of magnification. The problem with this word magnification in that sense is that's how a lot of Christians and me and all of us, like, like if we're honest with ourselves, that's how we magnify God. Meaning we have a really small picture of God. And we view like, oh, I'm going to magnify this really small God. I'm going to try to make him seem big. And then when something goes wrong in your life, a circumstance, you're shaken by it and you're uneasy by it because your God is so small that he can't handle whatever problem you're going through. It's convicting. But now the opposite magnification is the whole uh, telescope now, what does a telescope do? It takes something that's really, really far away, is super, like, greater than we can possibly comprehend, and it puts it into, like, a palatable image so that we can see. The earth is ginormous. I'm not even sure that ginormous is a word, but when you step off a plane after flying for 11 and a half hours, you get the picture of how big this planet is. Like, it's crazy. If you, tr like... I encourage all of you to travel internationally, to, to see other cultures and customs and to see how diverse this world is, to see what a creative God we have with different languages and foods and all sorts of stuff. When anybody from the church travels internationally, like I don't really, I don't want to say I don't care about like just within the United States, 
the one with the United States is just not as fun to follow. But like when it's like I remember Joshua Ong about a year ago. He's like, oh, there's a new international flight uh, nonstop from LAX to Singapore. I'm like, it can get to Singapore. I'm like, how long does that take? He's like, it's going to be 18 hours. And I'm like, are you in economy class? He's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, give me that flight number. I want to track you. And like, I'm, like, I got on my computer. I plugged it in. I see this little flight. It's kind of going around. A couple hours go by. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. Go to bed. See where he is when I wake up. You know, eight hours has passed. He's like, oh, he's almost halfway there. He's still going, going, going. He said one day in Singapore, then he flew back on the same flight. Come back, and I'm like, oh, you're killing me. Like on the plane on the way to Japan, it's like, wow, I'm flying for like five hours. And it's like, oh, I'm all the way up to Alaska. We're almost halfway there. And it's like, you know, we talk about going to, to Africa. It's like, do you realize it takes the same distance to go from LAX to Europe than it does from Europe down to Kenya? And Kenya is only like halfway on the continent of Africa. It's like, this earth we live in is huge. But then, if you compare the earth to the sun, the earth seems really small, like really in comparison. And then you go, well, the earth, the, the sun is really like huge. I, I want to go visit that place sometime. But it's like we'd all melt away. <laughs> and then you start looking at like, what do they call them? The, the superstars or the giant stars or whatever. And if you put it on a computer screen, you see these like super stars. The sun is only like one pixel. And then it's like the earth is not even visible. And how can this huge thing that we know and live on and like do all sorts of cool stuff on, how, how can that not even be visible when you start comparing to other planets that we know about? Back to the point, Gunnar. Telescope. See, so when we talk about exalt Christ, magnify Christ, we have this huge, giant, uncomprehensible God that is greater than any, anything that's sovereign, that's loving, that's all-powerful, almighty. He spoke all of this into existence, but he just spoke it just out of nothing. Changes how we view life. There's a song, I had to Google it, so don't, don't think that I'm some like, I don't think I have, to pr- pr- I don't have to explain to anybody how terrible I am with music. I very rarely even know the words that are being sung. But on Caleb, I've noticed, there's been this song. It could be a new song. It could be a really old song by Natalie Grant. I Googled that. And there's some lines that have caught my attention. And in this song, she says that she wants the healer more than the healing, that she wants the savior more than the saving. She wants the giver more than the giving. Those are powerful words. And when we see Paul's prayer He wants this God to be magnified in his life regardless of what he's going through. A few years ago, I think it's been 15 years now, she came to our church a number of years ago, Krista. She was a missionary in the Middle East. She's like super gifted, super credentialed. I I, I don't know if she has her PhD, but she has like a pretty high master's in like Islamic studies, language. And she spent her time in the Middle East. And when I first met her, I was going to the Middle East for different reasons than she was going to the Middle East for. And... So we had the opportunity to pray for her one time. And what do we pray in those prayers? We pray, Lord, keep her safe. Give her a safe flight. 
Keep her safe with the people. Keep her safe, 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 safe. May, may nothing, may, may she so much as not even skin her knee. Kind of, like, that's how we pray, right? Just, not just me, right? It's all, like, we. She looked at us and she said, please, guys, don't ever pray for my safety again. <laughs> I know where you're going. I've been there. She's like, I don't care about my safety. She's like, I care about God being glorified in whatever he's called me to do. And it's, it's convict from that moment, I've been super convicted. Like, I'm all for praying for people. Like, and, I, and I'll pray for you. If you're sick, if you're cancer, you have, I, I will pray for you in earnest. But my fear is that sometimes when we pray, we lose the big picture. And there's a lesson that we can learn from. I think so often that we're so worried about our comfort that we miss what God is trying to teach us in our discomfort. And so Paul's prayer because he didn't say pray for my safety in here pray that I'd be released pray that they'd feed me every time pray that I'd have a spot to go to the bathroom pray that like whatever pray that Christ would be exalted whether I live or die that's all I care about he's always been exalted in me and my body like I want to finish strong I don't see anywhere Paul asking to pray for his safety now I'm not saying praying for safety is wrong but I think that we all could use a pushback for perspective. Because I think that in perspective, that's the key to true joy. When we realize that this life is it's like that. He says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, verse 21. Like literally it reads, for to me to live Christ and die gain. There's no is. We, supp- we supply the is there. Um, and John Piper, I told you, I quote from him again. He says <clears throat> that the way we die reveals the worth of Christ in our hearts. Christ is magnified in my death when I am satisfied with him in my dying. When I experience death is gain because I gain him, or to say it another way, the essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. Christ will be prized in my death if in my death he is prized about my life. And when you price Christ like that, it doesn't matter what happens in this life because all I'm longing for is him. The question, I, like all week, just reading this and, and meditating upon these words of Paul, I keep thinking, how in the world do we do this? How in the world do we get there? I'm not naive. In 2003, my life changed. It was June, and I got the call that my best friend in the world, Tommy, was killed in Afghanistan. And I remember thinking, that's so wrong. Like, this just doesn't make sense. People say, kind of, you're a Navy SEAL, weren't you guys? Yeah, we're doing stuff, but we never lost. We never, we were invincible. And it was like suddenly, like, the reality of my mortality was, was confronted in Tom's death. And I was a Christian at this time, and I remember really wrestling with God, like, God, it's not fair. Like, and they come into this church. I've always, I, I've, I've, I wasn't joking. Like, I mentioned Alberto and Irma. They were the youth group when we got here, and they, they, everybody, like, a lot of people have died in this church over the course of the last 11 years. I've been there. 
for some reason, God gives me death more than he does weddings, but there's something beautiful about being in the presence of somebody who's dying. To be invited into somebody's family in their home as this happens. But this is where the rubber meets the road. I don't care what you like. You think about, you could be a 12-year-old kid and have all sorts of like thoughts, oh, I know this is important. It's like, well, put all your views and your stuff to the test when you die. How do you handle that? What do your beliefs say to you then? And to be in the presence of those who knew Christ dying, and it, there's something different. One of the passages that I've often gone to, and I'd encourage you to go there with me so that we can get, in, that we can get some insight from Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this section of scripture has, has been one of the most encouraging verses to me or sections dealing with dying and death and a Christ-like perspective so that when Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain, what does he mean? Does he expand on this anywhere else? And he does expand on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This, this tug of war that Paul has within his heart. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, for if we know that the earthly tent, that's our bodies, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal heavens. He's saying, okay, this body that we have is temporary. There's another one that's better, that's eternal, that's not going to fade, rust, fall apart. And if you don't know what he's talking about, he's going to expand. For indeed, if this house, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. This is the older I get, the more I realize that going from the ground to the, the, to, well, the top, <laughs> from the sitting to the vertical, comes with like the, oh, uh, crack, uh, kind of like stiff. And then being in this church where there's so many older people and wisdom, every time I go, oh, yeah, that's stiff. They're like, you're, if I could have your body right now, you don't even know what's coming, son. And so Paul writes this groaning. This tent we have is passing away, and the older you get, the more it falls apart. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything is moving from order to disorder. And he says, even though it's moaning, even though it's fallen apart, we cling to it. We don't want to let go of this life because this is all we know. Being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed. That means to die. And naturally, when you die, you only, well, we'll move on. You only take what you came in with. So, but to be clothed so that what is mortal, this is fascinating, this is Paul's understanding of death, that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. See, death doesn't seem natural to us. I know on PCs, like I used to get all like the blue screen of death, like you're working on your computer, you're kind of typing, all of a sudden, you have reached a fatal exception. <laughs> There's... No, Try restarting it, but uh, it might not work. <laughs> and that's what happens to us when we see death. I don't care who you are, Christian, non-Christian, there's something about death when we stand on death's doorstep and we see someone die, we don't, like, there's something within us that says we weren't designed for this. Solomon tells us that eternity has been placed in our heart, and so we, we see death, and it's like this, this wasn't supposed to be this way. But Paul says death for the believer is being swallowed up by life. It's not the candle being snubbed. It's graduating to true life. Now he who has prepared 
us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, that there's this guarantee, this pledge that, that God has given to us to affirm that what he says is true. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are in the, at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He says if we're in these bodies, we might, we might know Christ, we might have the Spirit of God within us, but, but there's, it's dim. And when we die, when we leave these bodies, we'll be with them face to face. For we must all, uh, therefore, uh, therefore, we also have this as our, as our ambition, verse 9, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So whether he's alive or dead, either way, he wants to glorify God with all that he does. Then he says in verse 10, for we must all appear for the judgment, before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So if you go back to Philippians, and we read in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me to live is Christ, or to me to live Christ. Die is gain. Because one day we'll all stand before Christ and we're going to give an account for our lives. This is for, this is for everybody. This isn't just like for the non-believers. Like Christians will stand before the Lord and you've been gifted with certain talents, certain resources, gift sets. You're going to give an exam for your life. How did you use the things that I gave to you? And so Paul says, in light of that day, how I live my today I'm going to do everything for that day. And so if I'm alive today, I'm going to live for Christ. Everything I do is going to be about Christ. And if I die, that's better because I'll be with him face to face. And it doesn't get any better than that. Verse 22, Philippians. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. He says this is, there's a tension here. He's like, there's one side of me, like, you know what, I want to, I just want to be done with this. This earth is so bad, sin is so terrible. All you got to do is open the paper to see the depravity of man all across the world. Paul's like, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of all of the nastiness of the sinful world. I just want to go be with my Lord, where there's no more sin, there's no more ugliness, there's, there's, there's none of this. He says, but I know it's, it's hard to choose because if I, if I stay here, there's labor for me. God has a plan. There's stuff for me to do. Verse 23, but I'm hard-pressed on both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So he's not, Paul's not suicidal. He's longing for his Lord and he recognizes that as long as he's in this body that he is separated from his Lord. But knowing that he's alive, his God, he knows, has placed him there to labor for his glory. And as a side note, if you've ever heard somebody say that Christians don't get discouraged, depressed, suffer with depression, that's foolishness. Throw that, like, throw that out. If you, if you go to, we're not going to go there, but in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul writes to the church in Corinth 
that he was so depressed to the point of death that he was discouraged. This is the Apostle Paul who God used to pen most of the New Testament. He says, I was so depressed, I wanted to die. But you encouraged me by the sending of Titus. So, so this isn't like, Paul just longs for his Lord more than he longed for this life, but he recognized that God had him here for a purpose. And so he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progression and joy in the faith so that, you, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Like, this is funny. He's in jail. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die, but he says, I'm convinced of this, that I'm going to remain. Maybe God has given him peace. He's like, I'm going to be released. I'm going to come to you. Uh, he's going to offer his life to them so that they would be encouraged in their faith. And so as we wrap up this section, I like to live Christ to die again. How do we reach that place? Like we, we, we sing that song, like we sang it a couple times today. How do we get the place where we actually really mean that? And, and I think that there's, there's one thing of knowing Christ. And I'm, I'm not just talking about like the sinner's prayer. Like there, there is that if you haven't, Come to the place in your life where you've trusted in Christ for salvation. That's like a step one. But for those of you who have trusted in Christ, it's not like you're all done at that point. Life with Christ means trusting him. That means when the doctor tells you you have cancer, are you so rattled by that that you lose your joy? Or do you receive that news and and? You could be upset, but to say, you know what, God, you're bigger than the cancer. You're bigger than you fill in the blank, whatever it is that's, that you, is your circumstance, to know that God is bigger and to say, well, you know what, God, you're bigger than this, and if you want to take this from me, that would be really, really wonderful. I would love for you to take this from me, and I'm going to pray to that end, but in the midst of it, help me to exalt you in my body. That's trusting him with your life and consequently your death. And if you're here in your life, like which all of us are, unless you're just really asleep, and I, I, I that we that you would offer your life to him to be used by him. Like the the, the ways are endless and how you can be used by Christ. Sometimes it's easy, like, hey, there's a barbecue out here. Like going and eating and participating in the church and giving of yourself relationally to others. That's being used by Christ. Like, like trust me, like I'm an introvert, like, and that doesn't mean personality. I've heard it described like people, like you're either uh, solar powered or you're, you have to charge the battery. I'm more of a charge the battery, and, and I have to go back and get recharged. Where Anna gets around people and she's like, oh, it's like energy. And so there's time, like at the end of like two services and stuff, it's like, I just want to go home and take a nap and, you know, like veg for 12 hours. But it's like, no, like, and I'm not going to stay for, well, there's tri-tips, so that's appealing. But it's like giving yourself in relationship and participating with the body that could be exalting Christ for you. Passing out coffee, like whatever it is, I'm not going to, like, but my prayer is that for all of us, is that the desire to live is Christ and to die is gain would be a reality for each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the life of Paul. I thank you for how you used this man. I thank you that by your spirit you used him to 
give us your word in large part of the New Testament. And Father, we see that he wasn't moved by death. He wasn't moved by the pleasures of life. We'll see in a couple chapters that he says it's rubbish. The drive of his life was Christ. And Father, I admit that each of us here, we struggle with the temptations of the flesh, temptations of the world. There's a lot of shiny, bright things that get our attention in this world. And it's really easy for them to pull us away from you. And so, Father, you know each one of us here. And I pray, Father, that you would help each one of us to grow in our desire for you. I pray that you would light the fire within us that burns brightly for you. Father, we, um, we just want more of you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.